Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Good afternoon and good evening for our listeners outside the U.S. I'm Bill Glasgow, Director of State and Local Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance. I am joined by Susan Walker, Co-Director of Penn IUR at the University of Pennsylvania. And this is Special Briefing. Thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate your time. And we're going to get right to the subject matter in a second. Today's subject is assuring public worker retirement security amid the COVID-19 fiscal stress. This is a subject that has been with us for several years and is kind of a little below the headlines in all of the efforts to fight the pandemic and fight the deficits that have come with it. But it's not going away. There are questions of risk. There are questions about fiscally stressed states and cities, their pension contributions, and building up larger debts that will have to be repaid or renegotiated someday. So we have for you a terrific panel of experts, which Susan and I will post. We have a bunch of questions from the audience, which we took in advance, so we won't be taking live questions. But if you have any more questions, we will certainly try to address them. We're going to have some brief presentations from our panelists and go to an open Q&A. So who do we have up today? As I said, it's a great panel. Number one, David Leds from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. David is going to talk about the brand new pension, state-level pension database that the BEA has created. It has some surprising numbers in it, and David and Don are both very familiar with it, and we'll get to it. Along with David is Don Boyd from Rockefeller College at University of Albany. Don's going to talk about that and also about pension risks, and there's a bunch of them that need to be considered. After that, Tim Little from Standard & Poor's will be talking about S&P's latest research on state and local pension pension obligations, the birth that states need to bear for pension and OPEB retirement obligations, and also some words on pension bonds. Herman Santos from LA County. Herman is the chairman of the Board of Retirement for the LA County Employees Retirement System, La Serra. Herman's got some really interesting stuff on how La Serra has been attacking the issue of risk both from their own portfolio and to the county by limiting some of their pension exposure for many, many years. And then Stephanie Miner, a Volcker Alliance board member and former mayor of Syracuse, before that also former labor lawyer, uh, someone who's seen this from both sides of the table. Stephanie's going to talk about some of the challenges right now and ahead in dealing with retirement obligations for the public workforce. I'm going to turn the mic over to, to Susan Walker, co-director of Penn IUR, to get us going. Thank you again for dialing in, and off we go, Susan. Thank you so much, Bill, and welcome to all. We have an extraordinary panel today, so let's get started. We begin with David Lenz, who is an economist at the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. And David is responsible, along with others, for the development of a new data set, which for the first time enables comparison of states over time using consistent measures, consistent discount rates. It enables us to track 
how states are performing on this important metric of funded liabilities. This will be an important resource. We'll turn first to David, who I'm turn now to David, who will discuss why this database was created, how to access it, how to use it, and some of the findings. David, thank you much for joining us. Please go ahead. Thank you, and good morning. Right, so this data set was released for the first time in July, and it consists of a set of statistics for the defined benefit pension plans of state and local governments. Now, it's an aggregate of all of the state-administered and locally-administered plans in the state, so it's going to give you a, a macroeconomic overview of public pensions on a state-by-state basis. And we think it's a fairly comprehensive data set. It includes not just liabilities and assets, but it has details on the current receipts of the pension plans, their current expenditures, the cash flow, and actuarial estimates for things such as employers' normal costs. Now, some of these statistics feed into the state personal income and GDP by state statistics that BEA has been producing for many years. For instance, employers' normal costs is a part of the compensation of employees, which is a component of GDP. And the interest on pension liabilities is a part of property income, and that's a component of personal income. So what we've done is we've arranged the pension components into a separate data set for the pension fund sector of each state, and then made estimates for additional items which do not feed into personal income or GDP. And these statistics are a time series set. So we've got data available annually from 2000 to 2019. And they're measured consistently across all states on an accrual basis using a common discount rate, although we do allow that discount rate to change over time. And the data are benchmarked to the 2017 census of governments. So there were some challenges putting these statistics together, and I don't want to go into details, but I do want to mention a few of the problems that we had to solve. And the most basic challenge was identifying the universe of pension plans. We started with the 2017 Census of Governments, and that has 5,529 pension plans, but even that was missing a few large plans like those for the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Another challenge was taking into account the fact that accounting standards have changed over time, most recently in 2014 with the introduction of GASB 67. And then, of course, there's the problem of inconsistent assumptions that the pension plan is using, particularly with the discount rate. So let me highlight a few statistics from our data set. First, the pension liabilities of all state and local governments are $8.9 trillion, and that's as of 2019. And they have assets to cover 54% of those liabilities. And that's based on a discount rate of 4%. Now, the funded ratio varies considerably across states. And people like to focus on the states with the lowest funded ratios. And in 2019, they were New Jersey with a funded ratio of 31%, Illinois, 33%, Kentucky, 37%, and Connecticut with 39%. And that's for both the state government plans and and local government plans. And one of the consequences of a low funding ratio is that the cash flow for most pension funds is negative, including New Jersey, Illinois, Kentucky, and Connecticut. In fact, 40 states had negative cash flow in 2019, and that's up from three in 2000. Now, in the past, 
liabilities have been growing faster than state economies, but over the last five years, they've been growing slightly slower. Liabilities have been growing at a 3.5% average annual rate, and that's a bit slower than personal income, which has been growing 4.4%, and GDP, which has been growing at a 4.1% rate. Now, another feature of our data set is that it has cost variables that can help you understand how pension liabilities have changed over time. In particular, we have a breakdown of what actuaries call normal costs or service costs. Currently, the normal cost for all plans in the U.S. is 21% of the wages and salaries of state and local government workers. And that's down from a peak of 24% in 2013. And as most of you know, most public plans require both employees and employers to contribute to the funding of the plan. Employees contribute about 5% of wages, and that's up almost a percentage point over the last 10 to 12 years. And employers contribute 14% of wages. That leaves a shortfall, a funding gap of 2%. In 2019, actual employer contributions of 34 states were less than employers' normal cost. As was mentioned, we've posted our data on our website, along with an article describing its data sources, our methodology, and some illustrations of the use of the data. And we hope that you will find it informative and useful. Going forward, we intend to update these statistics annually every September, along with our personal, our state personal income statistics. I urge you to take a look at the data and let us know what you think of them. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, David. This will be an incredible resource, and they are both the report and the data are also posted on the VOCA website and the Penn IUR website, along with other materials from today's special briefing. Our next speaker, Don Boyd, who is co-director of the state and local government project at Rockefeller College, is very aware of this project and has helped advise on it. And we'd, I'd like to have his comments on its contribution, as well as Don will address current risks, public pension portfolio risks, particularly in the light of fiscal distress of COVID-19. Don? Thank you very much. First, on the BEA data, because the data are calculated under a consistent set of assumptions and that are more realistic as far as the discount rate is concerned than what is typically found in an actuarial valuation, this makes comparison across states and over time more appropriate. They show that unfunded liabilities and the annual pension costs are greater than you would otherwise estimate using actuarial reports. They also aggregate plans in a state. This is really valuable. So, for example, take plans in the Chicago areas. Taxpayers must finance underfunded plans from the state, the city of Chicago, Cook County, Chicago Public Schools, and transit and other authorities. All of that is drawing on the same tax base. When you look plan by plan, you can't really parse that out. At the state level, I wish it were at the local level, but it's too much to ask for. At the state level, BEA data allow us to examine this compounding effect and allow us to examine it over time and across states. It allows us to look relative to the size of an economy rather than just at funded ratios. So, for example, when I looked at these data for 2018, and I imagine they still tell the same story now, they showed that New Mexico and Mississippi both have higher unfunded liability relative to their economies than does Kentucky, which of course is a 
deeply, deeply underfunded state. But you can't get that when you only look at funded ratios. So great data, a nice step forward toward transparency. Very, very useful. Regarding pension risks, you know, the two major risks to public pension funding are correlated. Those two risks are investment return shortfalls and the risk of the government will not be able to fully pay contributions. These risks are correlated because often a bad economy leads to poor investment returns and also to weakened finances for the government. So the fiscal pressure from pension contributions, that is the risk of this pressure, is greater than what we would see if we looked at pensions in isolation. Standard analysis of pension risk doesn't take this correlation into account. In work with my colleague Iman Yin, we modeled these correlated risks for a typical public pension plan, and we looked at the probability that government pension contributions would double as a percent of tax revenue within a 30-year period taking into account that when investment returns are bad, tax revenue often is bad. Not in lockstep, but but often. So again, actuarial reports don't tell you about these risks because they generally work on the assumption that plan assumptions will be met. Investment advisors sometimes do what are known as Monte Carlo analysis, where they consider the investment risk, but not its potential correlation with government tax revenue. When we did that kind of analysis on a typical plan, we found about a 1 in 16 chance of employer contributions doubling as a percent of tax revenue within 30 years, 1 in 16. But when the correlation is taken into account, we found the risk rose to about 1 in 6 for a government that's heavily reliant on sales tax and 1 in 4 for a government heavily reliant on income taxes because income taxes are heavily influenced by financial markets typically. These risks are correlated. What it all means, honestly, is that it's a lot riskier world for public pension funds than is typically understood. These risks are both worrisome in the COVID-19 environment. The fiscal risk has already come true, although it's not been as bad as many of the early initial expectations. The investment risk largely has not come true. Typical returns, according to Pew, fell about 4 to 5% short in the year ending in June, which is bad, certainly, but not catastrophic, not the kind of risk you might have thought of back in March. Both could get much worse. Moody's Analytics has a baseline scenario with about $190 billion state government revenue loss over three years and total state local fiscal problem of 450 billion under their baseline, but it rises to about 330 billion state government, 650 total under a severe stress scenario. The things that would trigger in Moody's mind that severe stress scenario was COVID-19 resurgence and lockdowns and lack of additional stimulus. Both of those look like very real risks. And of course, in addition, the stock market could get much worse. I personally don't understand why it has held up as well as it has. And there's a huge longer-term risk to public pension plans because of low interest rates. When interest rates are this low, you have to have relatively risky assets, quite frankly, a fair amount of risk, and or else you have to reduce your return assumptions. And public plans are largely having risky assets rather than reducing their plan assumptions which leads to the topic of risk sharing. My colleagues, Gang Chen, Imun Yin, and I have been studying risk and, and cost-sharing policies for public pension plans. First, I'd just like to acknowledge that sharing here doesn't have its usual positive connotation. You don't necessarily want risks shared with you, but these policies can lower risks to the employer from investment return shortfalls. We found simple policies such as 
COLAs or employee contributions that depend on plan funded ratio or investment returns can reduce future risks, but only modestly. And that modest gain is not achieved, of course, until it applies to a broad part of the pension fund. So if it starts out applying to new employees only, it will take many years. The real risk and cost reduction comes from adopting these policies so that they're triggered right away, as some governments have done. For example, if your COLA is suspended when you're less than 100% funded and you adopt it when you're 75% funded, you achieve savings and workers face reduced benefits right away. There are more radical departures that I don't have time to discuss from the DB plan environment that can share risks far more significantly, including South Dakota retirement system. But I will stop here and not discuss those. These policies, their appropriateness depends um, on a whole host of state-specific factors. I'll leave it there. Thanks. Thank you very much, Don. The risks are certainly increased in the volatile environment, and your work is important. We'll have some questions about that. But now let me turn it over to Bill, who will introduce our next speaker. Thank you, Susan. Just a reminder, you're, you're tuned in to special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR on both the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. This and all of our past broadcasts are archived on both websites. You're welcome to peruse and download as you see fit. They, they make great podcasts. So on to the, the state of pensions. Tim has S&P's latest findings on burdens. And in your report that's attached to the app and downloadable on our sites, you'll see some estimates of fixed costs. It's a series that Gabe Pettick, I guess, originated when he was at S&P and he's since moved to the California LAO office. But when David talked about the economic impact or economic share of liabilities, this gets into some big questions for states like Illinois, cities like Chicago, where fixed costs for retirement expenses, pensions and healthcare are really becoming a very, very significant number. So Tim, tell us about your, your latest findings and also a couple of words on and bonds uh, to, uh, to try and ameliorate the situation, which we can return to in the Q&A. Now, thank you, uh, Bill, and for inviting uh, S&P Global to share our research today. As Bill mentioned, there's a slide deck available with some of our key findings and related research I'm going to summarize a little bit for you. But uh, I'm going to start out by discussing the position public pension plans were in prior to the pandemic and then get into some risk we're monitoring and, and as Bill mentioned, some pension obligation bonds. Generally, when, when analyzing public pension plans, we view three items as potential risks. First, weak funded levels, particularly when optimistic assumptions and methods are used to determine contributions. Second is weak funding discipline, typically characterized by chronic underfunding of required contributions or not contributing an amount sufficient to pay off unfunded liabilities over a reasonable time frame. And third, governments with already limited financial fix flexibility to absorb increasing costs or respond to these changing market conditions. But that said, public pension plans were generally better positioned entering into this recession than the Great Recession. Through fiscal 2019, governments steadily improved their pension funding discipline while continuing progress toward reducing risk. Our annual survey of all 50 states and the largest 20 cities found that funding ratios remained relatively stable in recent years, with the median at 71% for these cities and, and states in fiscal 2019. But this stability occurred during a period of plans utilizing more conservative assumptions, including lowering their assumed rates of return and governments increasing contributions to plans as their revenues grew. But as we look to the future and consider the effects of the pandemic, there's strong potential that these recent improvements to funding progress will be undone. 
Some near-term risks that we're monitoring that I want to touch on are that some other speakers have mentioned, governments may reduce required or excess contributions. Persistently low interest rates may increase asset allocation to riskier investments. Declining public employee payrolls will likely increase future costs. And governments may consider taking on additional risk by issuing pension obligation bonds. First, the most direct form of alleviating pension costs is to pay less than what is required or issue debt to fund recurring contributions, both of which we view negatively when determining if a budget is structurally balanced. We've already seen some states pull back on contribution increases or fund less than what was done last year. But for pension plans, we expect sponsors will consider extending amortization periods, benefit design changes, early retirement programs, and other structural changes that was not that was similar to what was seen following uh, 2008 and the Great Recession. Second, the Federal Reserve has signaled that interest rates will remain low for the next several years. This means bond yields will also remain low, making safe investment options less attractive for pension funds needing to meet higher return targets. Over time, this could lead to budgetary stress and more risk increases potential contribution volatility. Another point of stress for some involves payroll growth. Beyond the fact that fewer employers means less employee contribution, Many employers are amortizing unfunded liabilities using an increasing methodology built around a payroll growth assumption. The idea of this level percent of payroll approach is that payments are deferred to the future in a way that they will present a consistent percent of the budget as payroll grows. This means low contributions now and higher contributions later. And lastly, I'll spend some time talking about pension obligation bonds. And there's a recent brief that was shared with you as well on, on this research and something we're seeing an increasing amount of in the market. The biggest question we're asked is why? Why is the government taking on a POB and what is their plan going forward? The reason for issuance and overall strategy are important as the circumstances could have negative credit implications. And we generally view POB issuance negatively in an environment of fiscal distress or if the POB is used for short-term budgetary relief. But it's important to remember that POBs are not a transfer of pension risk. Governments are still on the hook if there are experience losses or if assumptions are changed that adds to costs. But more to why. The first reason you're probably thinking is interest rates are low, and this perceived arbitrage is typically the first argument made. But interest rates are not exogenous. They're part of the system. That means that the difference between the bond rate and the assumed rate of return, often touted as that positive arbitrage, comes at a cost, increased risk. And as I mentioned earlier, increasing risk to reach targeted returns may lead to contribution volatility and future budgetary stress. But there is another purpose for POBs that we're seeing focused on contribution smoothing. Some pensions have complicated amortization structures that lead to volatility or periodic stress. A POB may smooth out these peaks while keeping the amortization length the same or shorter. Some other offsetting market risks, in part by putting a portion of the expected POB savings into a fund to be drawn upon during a market shock event, and some issuers whose pension payments fall a level percent of payroll amortization are repaying debt service on the POBs using a more level dollar method. This means that payments previously being deferred to the future are now pushed forward. And while I've tried to discuss some generalities, I ask you to keep in mind that our analysis is specific to each issuing government entity and can vary from one POV to the next. And I haven't taken any questions at, at the end, but now I'll turn it back over to you, Bill. Thank you so much, Tim. You're listening to Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And let's get right on to Hernan Santos, who's the chair of the Lasers LA County Employment Retirement System, and also has told us in our previous conversations about some of the moves that Lasers has been taking for decades to de-risk the pension. And I'm wondering how that's paying off now at a time of some fiscal stress. 
Well, well, good morning. Uh, first, I need to issue a disclaimer as a government employee, and here in my own capacity, I'm not speaking for LA County or La Sara or any of the labor unions that represent the employees at LA County. La Sara is a $60 billion pension fund with a, approximately 170,000 active and retired members. Our funding uh, ratio is uh, 77%. Our uh, investment return assumptions are 7%. LA County's uh, financial condition at this point, LA County has about a billion dollar deficit. LA County has implemented a reduction, budget reduction about 8% and has a hiring freeze. One of the reasons that Nasara is, is in such a well-funded position is because LA County and the unions begin to decrease the benefit levels that the county provides to the employees. We are down to this uh, sixth uh, tier. The first tier uh, was closed about 40 years ago. And, and since then, we have continued to implement uh, further reductions in benefits. What is interesting with regards to pension reform is that uh, it takes years for that savings to be manifested. Since we started about 40 years ago, about 20 years ago, we began to see the, the savings associated with that. In 2014, the governor implemented some further uh, pension reforms, which place a limit on any benefit increases on all uh, state and local pension funds. What is really interesting is that LA County and the unions over the years resisted to increase the benefit level. So for example, about uh, 15, 20 years ago, there was a big movement of a lot of the police unions, law enforcement unions, to increase the benefit level. The LA County and the unions refuse. I'm very active in my own union, and every time we ask as employees for improvements in the benefits, the first question that the county and the union will have, where's the money? What are you going to pay for Unless you can show me where we're going to get the money to pay for that benefit increase, we're not increasing any benefits. So the fiscal restraint for both the county and the unions has done uh, wonderful things for La Sarah. We also learned, we and La Sarah learned uh, great lessons coming out of the Great Recession. A lot of pension funds across the nation were in trouble because of the low liquidity. Pension funds uh, had to sell the securities to pay the benefits. We, we were fortunate enough in 2007 to, to 2009 that we always carry uh, a lot of liquid assets to pay the benefits. The lesson that we learned in, in during the Great Recession is that we we came really close to uh, exhaust all of the liquid assets. And we decided coming out of the Great Recession to increase our liquidity. We also had been expecting uh, a market pullback. And as, as a consequence, we began to position our portfolio in a defensive uh, manner. So we began de-risking the portfolio for the last probably six or seven years. So by the time the pandemic hit, 
We, our portfolio had already been positioned in, in, in a very defensive way, but it also gave us the opportunity to take advantage of the market the opportunities that the market dislocation provided us. And so that's not only that we've been able to pay the benefits uh, and take the opportunities that the market has provided us. We're looking good. I mean, the, the, the fact that the county had a rainy day fund, uh, and uh, which is also derived from the state, the citizens of the residents of the state, we all voted to increase the taxes over the years. So that created a rainy day fund. And being also fiscal uh, conservative, it allowed for us to go into this recession in a better position. However, Unless the local agencies and state and local agencies get help from the federal government, agencies like LA County is going to be forced to lay off employees. We have a large healthcare system in the county. Potentially, medical personnel will be impacted, as well as the law enforcement. So while we are in good financial position at this point, my fear is that unless the federal government step in and help the local agencies, we, we will be in serious trouble next year. Looking at the science and the fact that there's, there's a vaccine or two vaccines coming out, most likely if that happens, we should be able to begin to recover in the summer by next next year, next summer, or maybe it might take two years. So. That's where we are. Thank you. Well, thank you, Herman. That's very instructive. And I might point out, number one, the importance of rainy day funds is something that the Volcker Alliance has in our research, as has the, the Pew, uh, the Government Finance Officers Association. Those governments that have adequate reserves have really seen that strategy pay off. The second is that although California is running a $7 billion budget surplus, according to the new legislative analyst report out yesterday. By my back-of-the-envelope calculation, California has also received about $270 billion in extraordinary, outside of what they usually get, extraordinary federal aid since the CARES Act was passed earlier this year. That's essentially two times the state general fund budget being poured into the nation's largest state economy. That has really shown how a federal program like this can stabilize for everybody, not just retirees, but for all of us. So with that, let me turn to, to Stephanie Miner, former Syracuse mayor and Volcker Alliance board member. Stephanie, you you lived the life during the last recession, coped, coped with a lot of really deep issues, not just pensions, but infrastructure as well in Syracuse. You're teaching about pensions in your public policy class at, at Colgate. Tell us about your experiences, what you see happening now in some of the mid-sized cities like, like Syracuse, the older cities, and how this may sort of intersect with the call for, for more federal aid from Congress. Thank you, Bill. I'm going to follow Tim and sort of speak in generalities because men, <laughs> unhappy pension funds are unhappy each in their own way, but there are a number of trends. Before the pandemic, this was a chronic issue, the issue of unfunded legacy costs or poorly funded legacy costs. And I went through it in after the Great Recession and saw that the most convenient answer and the answer that many municipalities used was to engage in pension borrowing. 
pension obligation bonds. And that obviously was incredibly destructive to places like Stockton and Detroit and Puerto Rico and pushed them into bankruptcy. After with the getting out of the Great Recession, those municipalities that were able to do it, we still saw municipalities that had great growth suffer with this issue. Uh, municipalities that are in classically red jurisdictions like Houston and Dallas. But now with this pandemic that is just decimating revenues and skyrocketing needs, you're going to have municipalities all across the country who are going to be faced with really difficult choices. The first is that they're all hoping that a federal bailout will come and help them at least make easier choices. But these choices are going to be, are they going to take some of, if they're allowed to use this money for pension contributions, politically, are they going to do that when the needs of their communities and constituents are you know, apparent as they stand in line for food banks? Are they going to engage in borrowing capacity again to just try to kick the can down the road? But, you know, Is the federal government even going to allow this money to be used for a legacy cost? Because it's a great political weapon to say that they're profligate democratic mayors and governors who haven't done right or overpaid public employees. But sort of underneath that is the reality that according to some calculations, Kentucky itself has the worst funded pension fund in the United States at like 33%. So this is a huge long-term issue that unfortunately the short-term political incentives are going to be to not be politically responsible and funded. One, because the constituents are going to have huge needs. Two, because it's a, a huge political weapon that you can use. And three, because the way that we have answered this problem before has been to just engage in borrowing and say, we'll figure it out tomorrow or 10 years down the line when everything looks better. So there are no easy public policy solutions for this kind of problem because you can't tax your way out of it. And if we do have a market downturn, as Don Boyd talked about, curiously, it hasn't occurred. But if we do have one, that just exacerbates these problems to a level which is going to cause a lot of pain. Well, thank you, Stephanie. It's a sobering outlook. And to those pension borrowers who saw things work out not so well. This is a sample of one, but remember that New Jersey, back after the 2000-2001 recession, borrowed to make a, a pension contribution. And here we are in almost in 2021, the state is paying, the state's taxpayers are, are still paying on that bond issue. The portfolio strategy behind that failed, and it was a long-term bet that, that didn't pay. So there is a risk. We're going to move to Q&A now. Susan Walker, my colleague from Penn IUR, is going to handle that. And you are listening to special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And Susan, why don't you kick off the questions, please? Well, thank you very much, Bill. Thanks to the panelists. We do have a series of questions. First, I would like to raise one uh, that was uh, posed by Alexander Marion, Director of Communications, New York State Senate. Many cities and states will be facing challenges paying their bills. So panelists, and this is for everyone, but perhaps we can start with you, Armand, because you are on the front lines and you, Stephanie, and then please everyone jump in. How do you advise on smartly balancing paying pension funds, not borrowing perhaps, and the trade-offs with operating expenses? While still not borrowing, these are difficult choices that you've well described. What is your advice? Armand, do you want to start us? 
Uh, sure. Pension reform. I mean, the problem uh, with pension reform is that it takes at least 20 years before you begin to see the benefits of the reduced uh, level of benefits. But that's what we have done, and it's taken most uh, 40 years. Also, the system increasing the benefit level when, when things are good. So, in continuously uh, monitor the portfolio, I mean, that's what we do. We review a portfolio as a location on a regular basis to make sure that our portfolio is positioned in such a way that we are going to be rewarded for the risk that we are taking. That's the analysis that we do on every single month is are we are gonna, are we gonna pay uh, for the level of risk we are taking with regards to our, our investments. Issue my, my friend David Crane has raised in, in California, but this is really more universal, is the amount of money that state and local governments spend on subsidizing public employee retiree health care, especially for employees who retire early and are not yet eligible for Medicare. We still have uh, we still have the Obamacare system in California. We have covered California. New Jersey has made made substantial strides in lowering healthcare costs for retirees and using using the savings to help pay for pensions. That the longer term goal, if the state and unions can ever agree on it, would be to further. I'm just wondering. Ernan and, and others on the panel, how you feel about attacking that cost to address the pension funding issue? Yeah, with, so with regards to uh, the retiree health care, what LA County has done is that they that expense is part of the general budget. But also we, in discussions with the unions, uh, we begin to pre-fund retiree health care. That is one. Two, again, we also made some changes to reduce the benefit level. Like, for example, we no longer provide health care benefits for dependents. So that's, that's been, that should generate a tremendous savings for the county. So and also the other um, change that we implemented is that employees now, once they have become eligible for Medicare, they have to enroll in Medicare. So we become like a, a supplement. So there are some changes that can be made, but again, it takes years before you can see the, the benefit of those uh, changes. So that actually leads us to another question, which I think has been addressed to some degree, which is, have there been a lot of successful pension reforms that have materially made a difference on pensions? This is from Catherine Krawitz, an analyst at BMO Asset Management. And I think, Ramon, what you were saying is that there has been successful pension reforms coming into this COVID crisis. And Stephanie, you were saying that as well, and you too as well, Tim. And Bill, in your work at Voker, along with others, you have tracked significant pension reform. So perhaps we can address, and everyone please weigh in here, how important have pension reforms been over the last 10, 20, and Ramon, you say even going back 20, 30 years, in getting us to a better position going into COVID. Perhaps we can start with you, Tim, on that. From our perspective, I mean, pension reforms over the last 10 years have been instrumental in in improving the health of pension plans. And I think it's important to note that pension reforms don't just mean benefit changes or or changes to the design. Just some of the the movement toward more conservative assumptions, lowering discount rates. I think the average has gone from maybe about 8% maybe a decade ago to closer to 7.2%. And so 
states and localities even going lower under 7% on their returns has increased plan liquidity as well while keeping maybe the funded ratio stable. But you know, to Ramon's point, I mean, tender forms do take a long time to, to start showing up, having in a, a meaningful impact, but it, it's important to sort of lay the, the groundwork now and states and localities did, have been doing that over the last decade on incremental changes that have helped keep some of the costs under control in, in areas and in, in helping their, their credit profile. So this is Don, I'd just like to be clear that I, I'm not advocating cutting OPEB or healthcare benefits, but when you just look at what's practical, the legal and contractual protections for pensions leave very little latitude for near-term reductions in cost to government. It varies around the country. The laws differ. There are some places where significant savings are possible, but often it's not often it's exactly as just described. It takes a long t- time. By contrast, OPEB has very different legal protections. Often it can be collectively bargained or legislated. Not always. Illinois is different. But I think that realistically, it's far more likely that the typical government can achieve significant savings in the near term from OPEB than from pensions. Again, not ignoring the latter, but but it's just, you know, the situation. And by OPEB, we mean uh, other post-employment benefits, which is a bureaucratic term for (laughs) mostly retiree health care. I agree. Uh, Pennsylvania, Susan, is, is Pennsylvania has actually been one of the leaders in passing a pension reform plan which shares the risk more equitably by, over time, moving the workforce into a blend of a 401k program along with a defined benefit pension plan. One of the issues is that, as well, two of the issues, one is currently structured, many pensions have all the risk sitting on the taxpayer and very little except for bankruptcy risk for localities on the pension plan participant. We need market risk, inflation risk, uh, and it's and it's not clear that those risks are being paid for adequately or shared adequately. That's really a, a major concern. You see corporate America shifted dramatically away from defined benefit pensions just because it had to put the exposure on their balance sheet, and all of a sudden it became a big risk issue. This is a not insignificant concern, but they take the, the Pennsylvania reform will take decades to affect. Not a short run solution. And also there's pain in reducing benefits, health benefits, particularly in a time of COVID. Let me turn to another potential solution which may have downsides as well. And this comes from a question from Eva Hayes, the city of Philadelphia. When should agencies start to consider buyouts And what should the service range be? I know that buyouts are being considered right now, obviously many places, but are there downsides to buyouts in terms of future costs, uh, in terms of the structure of the workforce? I think you were talking a bit about that, Tim, in your comments. Do you want to return to that? Yeah, I mean, I can't comment specifically on, you know, what would be a good service range or things to consider buyouts, but, you know, just going back to my remarks, I mean, if, if there are less employees, I mean, that is less contributions going to the plan, but to the extent that a lot of plans are paid into by employers based on a level percent of payroll and an escalating factor that goes into that, I mean, if you if early retirement incentive programs and others that would reduce employees can increase costs a little bit, really just depends on, the, on how they're structured, but that can increase costs in the short term 
in, in terms of the life of the plan. So it is something that, you know, typically when we look at pension reform, look at sort of a holistic approach, what are the different levers being considered, what's legally available, because that certainly is a big factor that goes into what can be considered. But certainly what goes on with the, with the payroll growth assumption is something that we look at. Would anyone else like to weigh in on this? Stephanie, would you like to? You've been in the front lines on that. I think, Susan, it's it's a question of all of the issues have are painful. Buyouts are the least painful, and they get you up front the most amount of money in terms of the trade-offs that you're getting. So if you're facing a fiscal crisis immediately, then having a buyout gets you closer to you know getting a turnaround or a return on that painful decision as opposed to pension reform, which Armand correctly notes is a long-term strategy. I would say as part of that, though, I think it's integral that you bring in the employees and the community to make sure that they understand that you are facing a crisis. Part of the issue of pensions and defined benefit pensions that I found in 2007 and 8 and still today is not many people really understand the far-reaching impacts of it. And so when something like Detroit happens or Stockton or for that matter, Central Falls, Rhode Island, a lot of people are kind of like, well, how, how did that happen? In a democracy, part of getting the democracy to act is by forcing a crisis, and we don't need to force one in this case, and that means bringing awareness to people who have a stake in it and saying tough decisions are going to have to be made, and the sooner we make them, the easier they are. And I think that a buyout is, again, in the list of very tough decisions, one of the easier ones on the scale. Would anyone else like to weigh in on this? If not, I will turn to another two-edged sword, which is pension obligation bonds. What are the Upsides and downsides. Tim, you have already weighed into some degree on this, but if I've gotten you right, you've said that they're, you, you, the rating agencies more broadly, view them as a negative, but nonetheless a short term, another one of these short term solutions that may have long term negative trade offs. Yeah, I, I think just to clarify, typically they are viewed negative depending on, on how they're utilized. And a lot of places will end up using just for immediate budget relief if you're paying current year contributions with, with borrowing, that certainly is, is something we don't view as structurally balanced. But we've also seen some uh, parts of the country and over the time that POBs have been issued have been used as part of more of a holistic approach to addressing pension issues. So generally, we look at how they're used, what's being done, how they're measuring the, the liability they're paying off, what does that mean for contributions, um, how this affects the debt profile. So really, it's also is there an understanding of the risks that goes with issuing pension obligation bonds, and, and what does that mean for, for costs going forward? John, would you like to weigh in in terms of the risks? Well, I guess what I would say is that in this environment, it is crazy to think that governments are going to be able to pay fully for ongoing expenses with ongoing revenue. Revenue has fallen off a cliff and the kinds of things governments spend money on endure, you know, kids in school, people on Medicaid. So one way or another, many governments are going to find money that is not current resources. And they ought to look at it from a broader perspective than just the pension fund. They ought to look at it from the government as a whole. Cheap money is better than expensive money. So if there is a way to construct a mechanism where you can borrow at tax exempt rates, that's better than borrowing at taxable rates like with POBs. 
if you had planned so ahead and correct e pension obligation bonds if you had a rainy day fund that's better still it's taking resources that aren't current and helping you plug the gap you got to do it and they're going to do once you get past the rainy day funds they're going to do ugly things they're going to slip a payroll payment out of the year by one week so on a cash basis they had cash because they pushed a big payment into the next year they're going to make taxpayers accelerate money payments they're going to do all sorts of ugly things pob pension obligation bonds are just one of them they need to be evaluated carefully i think they're generally a bad idea and they should look for cheap money if you can get it. And one of the ugly things is layoffs, as Armand was discussing, it's happening in LA and happening elsewhere, and of course will accelerate depending on what Congress does or doesn't do. Let's turn to the question of federal aid. And there's a question actually from Bill. Bill, do you want to pose your question? Sure. In the in the this this is a lightning round because we're we're coming up on the on the hour. It's just kind of a general question which some of our speakers addressed earlier. There's been a lot of pushback from the GOP on bailing out profligate states and whether they're red states or blue states or red cities or blue cities. It's kind of difficult to, to structure an aid bill that says you can't use this money for this or for that because because money's fungible. So I, I get a billion dollars in general fund aid. I don't have to put that billion into into pensions or OPEB, I can put it, I, I can freeze up money for other uses. But what happens if there is no general budget aid coming? And uh, if Congress just decides that's, you know, that's it, we'll do some targeted stuff. We may give aid uh, directly to individuals again, like, uh, like in the CARES Act, but no general budget relief. What's the outlook there? Stephanie, you want to start us off? As Bill is saying, we only have like maybe 15, 20 seconds each. Please help us here. Yeah, so you're going to see states cut health care during a pandemic. You're going to see them cut aid to education. You're going to see local governments cut police and fire and infrastructure. I see that it's 11.59. All of these cuts obviously are adding to the disasters of COVID-19. But I want to close on a positive note, which is the work of many of the folks who are on today's call, all of the folks on today's call, increasing transparency, the work that David Blends and others at BEA and Don Boyd, your ongoing research, Ramon, your work over the years in structuring more stability in LA, and Tim, your work in evaluating risk, and of course, Stephanie, you are on the ground as no one else. The leaders today are facing immense challenges, and we thank our public servants across the board. So with that, I turn it to you, Bill. Indeed. Thank you, Susan. That I echo that and appreciate everything that everybody is doing. So this has been a special briefing from Volker Alliance and Penn IUR. Thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure and it was a great discussion. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.